Before we jump in this morning uh, to the text, let me just pray for us as a church. Um, you know, we get these kind of Sundays uh, where everything comes screaming back of winter and, and all the things come, you know, it just feels like we kind of get this fog, like when we hit these moments. And so I just want to pray for us, pray for you this morning. Um, we don't, I don't think maybe do this intentionally enough of praying for you all uh, this morning. And so let me do that before we jump into the text uh, in Luke 22 this morning. Father, this morning, I just want to pray um, specifically, number one, that our hearts, our minds would be cleared out of anything else but you. I pray that you would be able to communicate clearly what it is you desire to communicate to us this morning. I pray that as we look at you uh, and your son, uh, as we look at Passover, as we look at this idea of wanting to be with his disciples, that Christ wants to be with us, I pray, God, that that would be a message that we need to hear this morning. God, for those who came in this morning and they are just done, it's been a, it's a hard week. I pray, God, just for a restoration in them. I pray that you would renew them. God, for those who have come in and they're ready to go, um, I pray, God, that you would just ex excite that passion even more. God, for those who come in and just kind of like numb, um, I pray, God, that you would speak into their life this morning and you would encourage them, not in all the things that they can do, but in what you can do. Father, I pray that all of our attention would go to you this morning. Father, for those that are uh, around the world, brothers and sisters in Christ who are having a very different kind of Sunday morning than we are, God, we pray for strength. God, we pray for courage. We pray for boldness. We pray for protection over them. God, we do pray for brothers and sister churches, or I'm sorry, for sister churches in the United States as well, for, for Medford and for Maranatha. God, we, we pray for them this morning. We ask that uh, as they communicate the word as well, that it would go forth and that you would do what you have wanted it to do and not what we desire it to do. We thank you for that truth this morning that you are still reigning and ruling even when everything around us may not make sense. We thank you that you are still in control. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Luke chapter 22 is where we're going to be this morning. Uh, if you have your Bibles, we're not going to go verse by verse, but instead I want to kind of slowly kind of just track through some of these pieces this morning. We have hit Thursday. And uh, it is now the, the time where Christ has assembled his disciples for the Passover meal. They would have done this two other times prior to this that we know of or would have been part of his ministry uh, in those three years of him doing ministry. So Thursday, and he has assembled his disciples together to share this meal with them. Luke 22, let's begin in verse 7. Then came the day of unleavened bread on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. Now, this unleavened bread and this whole idea of Passover, for those who may be not familiar with the Bible or are unsure, what, what do we mean when you say Passover meal? I've heard that before in church, but, but what exactly are you talking about? The history of Passover is simply this. It's an annual meal, once a year, and it was celebrated by the Jewish people to remember. It was to reflect, it was to remember, it was to just spend time together remembering the freedom from slavery out of Egypt. And that was the main purpose of this meal. God's justice was going across the nation, and the only way you could escape that judgment in Exodus was to kill a lamb, put the blood on the doorpost, and the angel then passed over them as they exited out of Egypt. Ex Exodus chapter 12, verse 5 through 7 says it like this, Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male, a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it until the 14th day of this month, when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts, on the lentil, and which they eat. 
And so the question this morning you may be asking is, so what does killing animals have to do with Jesus and a meal, and, and where are we going with this passage this morning? Well, let's continue on in this idea of Passover and sharing it with the disciples. We go to verse 13. After they had prepped everything, prepared it, it says they went and they found just as he had told them, and they prepared the Passover meal. Now, this would include, and just, again, just kind of geeking out a little bit, but just so you can get some context of being around the table, reclining at the table, what would actually be at this table, what kind of Passover are we dealing with. There were four points at which the presider uh, would basically have at this meal a, a cup of wine, and this wine would actually be a symbol, again, of what was uh, in the past and why they are celebrating that meal together. So everything's a symbol as we get to Passover, but I found it interesting that each of these four cups of wine, as they're having this meal, was a symbol of a key promise about the Jewish deliverance that was to come. And this is taken, again, out of Exodus chapter 6. Exodus chapter 6, 6 to 7, says this, Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burden of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God, and you shall know that I am your Lord God, who has brought you out from under the burdens of Egypt. And so at this dinner table would be four different cups, and these four different cups would, would symbolize different things. So the first cup they would drink would be the one that was the rescue out of Egypt. Say, therefore, to the people of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you up under the burdens of Egyptians. That was the first cup. The second cup would be the rescue from slavery, and I will deliver you from the slavery to, from them. The third cup, redemption by God's divine power. And then the fourth one, which is where we get our communion cups today, is the renewed relationship with God. I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God. And each of these would take place every single year at this table. So you'd have these cups of wine. You'd have everybody assembled for this big Passover meal once a year. And then around the table, on the table, would be uh, a couple different things. There'd be bread. Which, which would be presented to um, represent Israel's affliction as they ate the manna in the wilderness. There'd be bitter herbs around the table, which I'm not a fan, but there'd be bitter herbs around the, the table, and they were meant to be bitter because they were meant to remind the people of the pains of slavery. Normally enough would be eaten enough to kind of tear up even. So I don't know if you've ever been to a meal like that where they're like, hey, this is supposed to be really bad. Uh, this is supposed to be against your palate, right? Uh, some of you have prepared meals like that, not on purpose. This was on purpose. And it was meant to invoke that idea of tears and bitterness. And then the main course at the Passover meal would be this lamb. And that was the main course. And, of course, it was the sacrificed lamb that was given for all people and it was put in the place. All this was put in place in Exodus. So, again... What are we talking about? I'm basically just putting the context of saying the Passover meal, as we look at it at the table, would have been something that Christ would have been uh, used to, the disciples would have been used to, and all of this is about symbolism. All of this is about pointing them back to the God of Egypt. Not, this is not just your normal, let's grab a meal together, let's hang out and watch the game. This was a tradition. This was meant to invoke remembrance. This was meant to push them, guide them on his history tour through the book of Exodus and remember all that God had done for them. And annually to remember all that God had done for the Jewish people. We pick up Luke 22, 14, 16 then. And when the hour came, he reclined at the table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat, until, will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. Again, Christ is now at the table. 
He is seated with his disciples, all the symbolism, everything pointing us back to who God is. But don't miss, miss this, that in the middle of this crazy story on a Thursday, as he's heading to his death in the weekend, he's gathered with his disciples at a very, very, very relational place. Think of our own houses where you have the, the front door, you have the porch to be able to get to the front door, and then you have a doorway, and then possibly there's the foyer, and then a living room, and the dining room. In order to get into the dining room, you kind of got to work your way through. And typically, um, if you're having people over to your house, you know, it, it, it's not just anybody you bring into that, that place of the dining room. You actually share a meal together. It, it's intentional. It's on purpose. There's a relationship that's going to happen. There's conversation that's going to happen. And this is the scenario as we find it in the past around this Thursday that Christ is assembled with his disciples. And this is that moment where Christ is locked in with his disciples, reclined at the, t at the table, undistracted, locked into the moment, and desiring to share this meal with his disciples. Which is just fascinating to me in, in one sense in the fact that I don't know if you've ever been there before, but you're, you're trying to have a conversation with somebody and, they're, and they've they're probably like three places away from where you're actually in the conversation. In other words, they're, they're thinking about three other things other than the conversation that they're in. And you can kind of tell they're kind of lost and, and not really paying attention. And, and they're not really focused on you or, or the conversation. And you're kind of like, well, that was a weird conversation. But we just kind of let it go, right? Imagine Christ at this moment. He's probably, I mean, he's got a lot on his plate here, right? I mean, he's facing his death in the next day. And, and you would think, like, if anybody were be distracted in a conversation or not locked into the table or I've got things to accomplish, guys, this dinner's great, but I got to get moving to the next thing, Christ would be there, but we don't. What we find is Christ in this moment, it says he is eagerly desiring to share this Passover meal. He is locked in to the disciples. He is put out every distraction. He is perfectly at ease. He's not tense. He's not worried. He's just there. And I can tell you, man, there's so many good friendships and probably good dinners that you've had that you, that you just feel like, man, we are just at a really good spot, right? Like we're not worried about the weekend. We're not worried about things to come. We're just locked into the moment. I am loving having this time with you. That's what's happening here. And this would be not only the time that he had locked in for a meal, but during this meal also, they would be doing a bunch of other things that would be guiding them to this unity in, in their faith. And there would be, there'd be reading of scripture at this meal. There would be sharing of memories in this meal, of the exodus and things that happened. They'd, they'd have laughter and ease and commonality of being together at this meal. And, and they'd be singing and telling stories and eating special foods. And there'd be this, even hymns would be sung. And it was just this really good table place that's just, it's good to be here. It's good to be in the presence of God. It's, it's good to be at a place where I can just sit and, and talk and, and laugh and, and not feel at ease and not feel, you know, all tense over this. I can just relax. And that was this beautiful part of Passover. And every year people look forward to this meal. Christ in particular looked forward to this meal because he knew this would be his last with his disciples. And instead of being worried and all caught out of shape, he was at ease and in love with this moment and just there. 
And I believe here at this dinner, at this, be, at this table, is where we get our first thing this morning and where we're going to be kind of going for the rest of the, 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 the talk this morning. And that is this, that we are going to see Christ in this Thursday pull off some pretty big reversals. He's going to basically tell them that the way you live is actually to be in reverse. The way that you're supposed to get along in this life isn't going to make sense. It's actually going to be opposite from what you truly think it should be. And what we see here at this dinner table, first off, is we see this first great reversal of love poured out over love earned. You see, the guest at the table was Christ, right? The, the, the one who should have been honored and glorified was Christ. The one who should have been at the top seat should have been Jesus. But instead, what you see throughout this Passover meal is Jesus serving his disciples. He's sitting at this table, reclining as one of them, and he's sitting among his disciples, and he's saying, guys, isn't this awesome? Isn't this just so good to be together? Knowing probably full well he's got tomorrow to deal with on the cross, but he's sitting with his disciples. That just blows my mind that he's sitting with his disciples just completely at ease, pouring out love to his disciples. Can, can, I, can we just stop for a second and remind ourselves, this is Jesus. This is the king. This is the one who is ruling and reigning. And he's sitting at a table with 11 other messed up, 12 other messed up guys around this table. And he's offering them, just pouring out his love to them. It's as if he's sitting around this table and he's asking each of the disciples as he's kind of just sharing this meal. It's as if he's asking them, do you know how much I love you? Do you know how awesome this is? And again, this may get weird with 12 guys around a table and the one guy at the middle is like, dude, do you know how much I love you? Right? Do you know? I mean, I mean, I, mean, I say it, but it's like Jesus full in their face. I, I love you, man. I, 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 I want you to know how much I care. And this is what's happening. Jesus is trying to tell them again and again how much he loves them. And instead of earning all their love back, he is pouring it out, pouring it out, pouring it out, pouring it out. On, on Passover, the last day before he heads to the cross, where do you find your king? Your king is pouring out his love to his disciples. As I thought about this, I thought, man, I, we say I love you, and, and, and that's part of it, but it, it, it's it's, I'm sure Christ probably at this table had the same kind of feeling as we do as parents where you, you tell your kids you love them, right? <laughs> I love you. Have a good day. They're kind of like, cool. Love you. Cool, right? We tell them again and again, we love you. I love you. I love you. And oftentimes it's just kind of like, choo, choo, choo. but here's the hard part of, of being a parent. They know that we love them, but it's very difficult to communicate just how much we love them. Like, it's hard. For, we can't just put our heart into them and say, just feel this just for a second. How much I love you. How much I care about you. How much I just, I love when you're here and I hate when you're not around. I love you. And we can't take that in, but this is that moment where we, we, we draw them in close and we hug them as tight as we can to let them feel at least a bit of the love that we have for them as kids. This is Christ in that moment pulling his disciples in, being like, guys, you're not going to fully get it, but I love 
each of you so much. And he pours out his love to them. The hard part, as I said before, is we as parents can't do that as, as much as we would like to. But here's the beautiful thing that we know in Scripture. That is that Jesus can do what we cannot. As he's pouring out his love... He can do it in a way that we as parents cannot. Stick with me just for a second here. But in Titus chapter 3, verses 5 through 7, we get this. He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Christ Jesus our Lord, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of the eternal life. There's a phrase in here that says, whom he poured out richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. Here's what I mean when I say you can't express all that love to your kid, but Christ can. Here's what I mean by that. Christ is a part of the Trinity. So Christ, through the power of the Holy Spirit, is able to convey an amazing thing. Get this. He is able to convey the overwhelming love of a father through his son to you through the power of the Holy Spirit. How's that work? I have no idea. It's beyond me. But that's what the scripture is telling us. You know how you want to put your heart in your kid and be like, I love you this much. (laughs) The Bible says that Jesus can actually do that. He can take the love of the Father, make it make sense from an eternal perspective through his Son by the power of the Holy Spirit into our lives if you are a believer in Jesus Christ. Isn't that crazy? And here's how I know that's true. One, it says it. Secondly, I know it's true is because you've experienced it before. You've had moments possibly in your Christian faith where all you could do is just sit and be like, I got no words, but man, does he love me. I got no words, but man, does he prove it. I got no words as I watch Jesus walk this life. I got nothing just to watch how he does this. It's just amazing. And he is faithful as a father to communicate his love to us, his kids. And I believe the disciples got a glimpse of it around this table. We look at Jesus, and as we watch him, and as we see what he does, the power of the Holy Spirit pours out the love of the Father onto us, his imparted sons and daughters, and he pours out this love for his son through Christ into us about when was the last time you and I had a moment where we were just able to look at Christ, watch his life, and be like, holy cow, he did that for me? How is that possible? How is that even, I'm, I'm not worthy of any of those things. I'm talking about the gritty, resilient, kind of ugly, crying, unstoppable kind of just moments with God where you're like, ah just need him to know he needs to hear and in return God's telling us I need you to know I love you when was the last time you stopped and thought about this king at a Passover table who was eager eagerly desiring to share a meal with his disciples when was the last time you looked and truly looked at Jesus and were in awe not of his actions but of his heart not of his mission but of just who he is. That's different. I think we're really good at knowing the mission of God and doing things for God. It's different when you actually sit and look at the heart of God. 
we see him for who he is because we can learn from a rabbi. We could become obedient to a master. Those are easy. But it is a whole other thing to be loved as a son and a daughter. Does that make sense? I can follow the teachings. I can obey like crazy. But it's a different thing to be loved by a father. Here's what I want to do. We don't do this often. But I thought, Rich, I'm going to throw this on you midway. So I did. So I said, Rich, hey, could you uh, play something for us? So Rich is going to come up. And uh, I just want to take a minute, a couple minutes, in the middle of the sermon, just to kind of say, man, when was the last time? Maybe this is all you need this morning. Maybe you're going to check out for the rest of the Sunday this morning, and that's fine. <laughs> Maybe this is what you need, though. Maybe this is that time where you're like, man, I just need to sit in the goodness of God, to sit and just be like, oh, I could just hear him and, and listen to his voice. I, 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 I'm loved by a king. I'm loved by the Father. I want to just give you a minute to do that before we rush into everything else. I want us to take a minute and remind ourselves of that kind of love, not being obedient to the master or just listening to a rabbi, but to be truly loved by your king. So we're going to sing this out together. You can stay seated, and then um, we'll continue on.
but I will boast in Jesus Christ, His death and resurrection. Why should I gain from His reward? I cannot give an I know with all my heart His wounds has made my ransom Why should I gain from His reward? I cannot give an answer But this I know Again and again, he loves you. Love poured out versus love received. Love earned. I think we always assume, like, I just got to earn my way to Jesus. I got to work my way there. The reality is, he's already done it. He's poured out his love on his sons and his daughters. And here's the thing. This is not in the notes. Here's the thing. He delights in doing it. It's not like he's forced to do this. Sometimes we as parents are forced to love our kids. Let's just be honest. <laughs> I love you. I love you so much. Now get out of my sight, right? He delights in doing this. I earnestly desire to share this meal with you. My disciples, the, the best thing that could happen, gathered around this table with his disciples. And he breaks bread and he shares this meal. But Luke does a turn here. And here's where things just kind of remind us of our humanity this morning. And in Luke chapter 22, let's pick up in verses 21 to 24. But behold... The hand of the man who betrays me is with me at the table. For the Son of Man goes as it has been determined, but woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. And they began to question one another which of them would be who was going to do this. Dinner takes a turn. Verse 24. A dispute arose among them as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. Love poured out versus earned. And then at the end of the meal, there's an argument happening, probably pretty loud and vocal among the disciples. You know, I think he likes me best, really. You know who would never betray him? Me. You know who probably would betray him? That shady guy named Judas in the corner. I bet it's him. You know who would probably do it? Probably the guy that's real quiet, John. I bet John's the one to do it. I bet he's going to do it. And John's thinking, you know, I bet who would do it? The mouthy guy. I bet it's Peter. I bet he's going to do it. And then they start to think, you know what? I'm so glad I'm not Peter. 
I'm so glad I'm not John. I'm so glad I'm not scary Judas. I'm so glad I'm not that. And there's this just weird kind of moment that happens that's just this like disgusting turn of the love that Christ has just poured out. And a dispute. That word in Greek is dispute. Okay, that word in Greek is angry fight. Like, this is just kind of like an argument that's getting hostile, awkward, like needing to leave the room awkward, right? Arose among them to which of them was to be recognized as the greatest, and God is going to die for them the next day. And their argument is over who is going to be the best disciple. Our second reversal is this, and we see it clearly the first shall be last. And he said to them, the kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those in authority over, those, over them are called benefactors. But not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you be the youngest and the leader as one who serves. For who is the greater, one who reclines at the table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at the table, but I am among you as the one who serves? In other words, Christ is saying, you know what normally happens is the guest is seated, reclined, and served the food. Christ says, I'm going to be the one to serve you. And not just serve you a meal, I'm going to be the one to serve you by going to the cross on your behalf. The second greatest reversal that we see on this Thursday is, is this idea of the first becoming last. This reversal, this question by the disciples was a powerful moment. And I believe it was a powerful moment because you truly see, unfortunately, the thing that keeps us from knowing the love of Christ as we should fully know it. And the thing that keeps us from knowing the love of Christ as we fully, fully should know it is this idea of pride. The reason maybe you, you don't want to go there, like, I don't know that I could get there, Joel, this whole, like, emotional, God loves me. I don't know that I'm worthy enough. Well, here's the thing. It's not about you anyway. It's about Christ. It's about his love for you. Pride is this tricky thing, and most of us think of it as this boastful thing arrogance that we remember from our bullies and in, in, in our, in our youth growing up, right? We knew the arrogant kids in our class. We, I knew the arrogant kids in my class, even in college. I knew the arrogant kids. Uh, Dr. Sawyer, I got a question, right? Like, you know, no, you don't. No, you don't. Nobody cares about your question. You just care about being heard and seen as the smart guy in theology class. That's all you are. And he's from Texas, and it was a whole thing. But not that I've, you know, passed that. When I see him in heaven, it's going to be great. Um, <laughs> Pride is a terrible, terrible thing, and it's tricky because we think it's that arrogance thing, but often we remember it from our youth, but it's really, it's not always the boastful thing, right? It's, it's not always the kid in class or the, or the guy at the office who won't shut up about the last thing he did and how awesome it was. Pride is actually better defined by C.J. Mahaney as this. Pride is when sinful human beings aspire to the status and position of God and refuse to acknowledge their dependence upon him. That's when pride kicks in. It's my aspiring to the status and position of God. Thank you very much. I'm going to start calling the shots from here on out. I'm good. And refuse to acknowledge any dependence upon him. I can get through this life just fine on my own, doing all the right moral things. I don't need a God to tell me I'm loved. I don't need a God to tell me he cares about me. I can just knock this thing out so I get to eternity. I know how to do this. Right? Pride is this idea of an aspiration to the status and position while refusing to acknowledge their dependence upon him. That's what the disciples were doing. <laughs> exactly what the disciples were doing. We got this. And we, we can do this even without him. The disciples were doing just that. We can be just like Jesus. We aspire to their, 
deposition of him, but refusing to acknowledge Jesus or any dependence upon him. We do it all the time. We want to be God. We want to call the shots and aspire to be in control. So we plan, we set goals, we call the shots, and then we say, oh, yeah, God, if you can come in and bless this, that would be fantastic. And we move ahead in five or four different areas of our life, and we kind of move ahead, and it's just the way it's logical to do. And then we're like, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. God, if this is the right way, could you just change it, please? Right? It's not an acknowledgement of who God truly is. It's, it's setting ourselves up for being God and acknowledging and, and, and refusing to acknowledge any dependence upon him. As we saw, the Gentiles exercise lordship over them and their authority over them are called benefactors, but not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become the youngest and the leader as one who serves. So one, you see the love of God in this passage. We have these two great reversals that are happening. Love poured out over love earned. The first shall be last. And I think all of that can be summed up in this last phrase this morning. And this last phrase is this. Biblical greatness is this. Sacrificial serving to the glory of God. That's what you see at the table. Truly what Christ is demonstrating on Passover around this table, reclining with his disciples is this. It's a sacrificial serving to the glory of God. And that is our call as Christians, that's our call as followers of Jesus Christ, is to make our lives a sacrificial serving to the glory of God. Let me unpack this real quick, explain these two different things practically with some help that may make sense. Sacrificial, first thing, right? It's in our mission statement, it's part of what we do. Sacrificial is this idea of it must cost you something. You must have to give something up. This plays out from elementary school all the way to 83 years old. You've seen this in school. Sacrificial may look like this in your high school or your middle school. That outcast kid that nobody talks to, you know, the one that always has to, you know, find the seat by themselves or during COVID, they didn't have a choice because you get to sit by your name and all that kind of stuff. But, you know, those kids that just kind of just nobody hangs with. What happens when you choose to go and befriend that kid? What happens is you lose status, Let's just be honest, right? You lose reputation when you go hang out with, you probably have the name of the kid in your, in your mind, unfortunately, right? You lose reputation, you lose status. It's almost as if some of the geekiness, weirdness, whatever, right? Loser goes on to you. You're hanging with so-and-so, that's, why are you, how does this work? And, and it's almost like you've, you've, you've kind of gotten some of that by just association. And, and what happens is we, we kind of look at that and we're like, nah, it's not worth it. <laughs> I've worked hard to get where I am. I've got a reputation. I've got a name. I can't really get rid of that. So I've got to keep this up. And so there's no real sacrifice because we haven't gotten in the mess with that person. Or a second example maybe that there's this, you know, well, I won't get into that one. That one's too much. Uh, but there was a mission trip in, in, in which there was some things that went bad uh, on this mission trip, and there was some plumbing involved, and uh, plumbing involved ended up becoming really bad plumbing involved, where things were overflowing in bathrooms, and and uh, we weren't there to do repairs on bathrooms, but we were there, and uh, all of a sudden, they're like, hey, can you help us fix this issue? And what turned into like a small project actually turned into like a whole lot of stuff, <laughs> in bathrooms, flowing out of toilets, into grounds. And I looked at this moment and I'm like, this is sacrificial serving at its best. 
because everybody came out of the bathroom smelling like stuff. Uh, everybody came out with stuff on hands, arms. Like it just, I mean, it was just nasty. And then it was like, hey, by the way, that didn't fix it. We got to actually trench the ground to get to the actual pipeline because this is bad. And we're like, we're just here to do VBS, bro. Like we didn't really, but, but the amazing thing about our team was that we said, you know what? Okay, this is a need. We're in it. <laughs> Literally, we're in it. And, and, and we had to get our hands messy and dirty in the process. And it cost us a lot. Pride, smells, time, VBS prep, you know. Students were kind of like, I ain't going in there. And adults were like, I ain't going in there. Uh, it was just nasty. And, but ultimately, sacrifice has to cost us something. And that's what we can see is, is if it's truly following Christ, sacrifice will cost us something. Sacrificial is piece of this thing. Sacrificial serving to the glory of God. It will cost you something. The second, the second part of this is, um, well, let me just, well, let me stop here just a second. We talk about sacrifice, right? We, we talk about those two examples. But let me just kind of brag on you all as a church as we look at this actually even more practically. Um, some of you are already doing this, and you have been doing this for a long time. So let me just brag on you guys just for a second when we talk about sacrifice. Sacrificial can be as simple as picking up that phone call when all you want to do is not pick up that phone call and not deal with another problem, right? But you pick it up anyway, and you listen, and you care, and you're like, what do you need? How can I help? The sacrificial looks like you, you've been serving in a particular ministry area for years, and you're like, I just want to, uh, I think I'm done. But you, you, you get another level, and you're like, I'm going to serve, and I'm going to be part of that ministry just because he's asked me to be sacrificial. Some of this is you're choosing to speak well of others in the church instead of gossip and judge them. That's a huge sacrifice. It'd be far easier to be like, you know what their problem is, but you don't. You, you're amazing at that. You're taking meals to other people, which is taking time away from your own meals and your own time and your own families. You're doing those things. You're seeking out new people on a Sunday, which is costing you time with your friends on a Sunday morning. You're doing those things. It's older brothers and sisters who are caring for the younger ones in order that their parents can go to a community group. Sounds like a big, you know, what are we talking about? That's a big deal, right? Some of you are driving to locations as, as, as students and, and serving in that way and babysitting for, for community groups. That's being sacrificial. That's costing you something. You don't want to do it. Maybe you do. I don't know. I wouldn't want to do it. Um, but it's sacrificial, and it's costing you something in the process. It's, it, it is in meetings out in the evening for discipleship that cost you time that you could be relaxing at home with a game. You know what? I'd, I'd much rather be in comfort mode right now, but I'm going to go, and I'm going to spend time with them because they need me to spend time with them. And those are just the ones. Some of you are even giving faithfully in your tithing to the sacrificial side of paying off whatever debt that is, is there. Like, you, you, you're, you're just like, man, I'm going to put my money towards God first. I'm going to be wise in it. And I'm going to trust him with my finances. And some of you are doing that, and that's an incredible sacrifice that you're doing. I think we can sometimes assume, like, sacrifice is all out there, and it's got to be giving our life for Jesus. Maybe, but maybe it's also in these smaller sacrifices that you're doing on a regular basis. And those are just some of the ones I know about. There's probably a million other ones that you guys are already doing. 
that are part of the sacrificial serving that you guys do on a regular basis. You're all sacrificing, but here's the caution, and here's where we wrap up this morning. Here's the caution in this. Sacrificial serving is great, but here's the thing that the disciples missed, and here's what we can miss as we look at this final day of Passover today. Sacrificing is great, but let's be cautious about why we're doing it, because the second part of the definition is this. Sacrificial serving to the glory of God, right? It's very easy to be sacrificial to the serving of Joel, to the glory of Joel, right? I better get recognition for all that stuff I cleaned out of that toilet in Chicago, right? Or, you know what? I'm going to just do this, and I'm not going to take any credit. I'm just going to stand back and let God get glory out of everything that I'm doing. The second part of the definition is the hardest part. The disciples missed it as well. Were they sacrificial? Absolutely. Did they do things they didn't want to do? Absolutely. But we always find the disciples as it was always a glory to them themselves and not a glory to God the Father. To be the greatest means sacrificial serving, but the why is very important here. To the glory of God and not to the glory of you. Again, pride is this. Pride is when sinful human beings uh, aspire to the status and position of God and refuse to acknowledge dependence upon him. So you can be sacrificial and refuse to acknowledge God in, in any of it. But you can also be sacrificial and still aspire to the position of God. Where would they be without my help? This, this, they wouldn't function without me here. I do so much around here. I wonder when everyone else is going to step up, right? People do not need you to be their functional savior receiving all of the glory. What they need is for somebody who's sacrificial and serving to the glory of God himself. And one of the ways that happens is going all the way back to Titus and all the way back to the beginning of our sermon, and that is this, that we look and watch and wonder at the cross and of our Savior and how much he loves us. One of the things that defeats pride is when you look at Christ and be like, man, what if I have to compare myself to when he's given me so much? One of the things that beats pride is just that affection as we look and draw all of our attention to him. John Owen, a great writer, pastor, says this, fill your affections, desires with the cross of Christ that there be no room left for sin. Put all of your attention, all of your affection on Jesus Christ so that as you acknowledge the love of Christ in your life, it defeats this idea of sacrificial serving to the glory of yourself, sacrificial serving to the glory of God. That's what we're heading to. That's what we want to see as we head into Easter, as we head into this, this, the rest of the semester. Truly that idea of like, I am loved by God. His love poured out versus earned. The first shall be last, and ultimately any glory and recognition should go back to the Father and not to me. As a church, may we be that kind of a church that says everything we do is to the glory and the reputation of Jesus Christ and not to ourselves. Because as we do that, then we truly are living as Christ has called us to live this morning. Let me pray for us as we close. The reality is, as I pray for you and as I pray for me, pride doesn't sleep, pride doesn't stop, it doesn't take a day off. Um, selfishness is very easy to come by. I'm really good at it. I'm an amazing selfish person. I really am. I'm probably one of the most selfish people I know, and I love it because it's me, and I don't want to do anything else that doesn't help me. Selfishness is always there. It's, it's like every single day you wake up, and you're like, there it is. There it is. 
right? And we can get caught up in trying to just, you know, do better, do better, do better. Or here's what I would say we could do. We could pray and we could say, God, I am a very, very selfish person. And the only way I know out of this is for you to fix me. I've tried a lot of stuff to be unselfish, and I've tried to serve, but it just gets ugly because I want reputation and respect back for what I just did. And then it doesn't come, and I'm like, you jerk, I just served you, right? You've been there. Maybe me? Okay, maybe it's just me. Okay. Um, all right, just your pastor has that problem. Um, but instead what I can do is I can wake up in the morning and say, God, I know, I know me. I'm going to be super selfish today. I know it. The only way out of this is you get to fix this and get glory out of fixing this. That's the only way it works. And so I'm going to continue to look at you as you continue to make me more like you in this life. I'm going to pray for you. God, this morning, um, pray for myself. Pray for this church. Pray that as we look to you, um, we not only look to you, but we be transformed by you. Father, this morning, for those who need it, I pray that uh, you would speak that love from the Father through Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit into our lives. Father, for the great reversal in some of our lives where we've been trying to live it the way we want to live it, <laughs> of, of, of just earning love and, and putting ourselves first, I pray, God, that you would, you would smash those idols of our life, that you would kill the selfishness in us, and, God, that we would say, you know what? The only thing I want is that your name gets bigger and my name gets smaller. And that only happens after years and years of following you. It, it, it's something that happens over growth and time. And I pray, God, for us as a church that we would grow to be more like you. I pray that we'd be a church that people would look at us and say, man, I don't know much about them, but I know a whole lot about Jesus. I don't know much about what they were stand for, but man, do they point to Jesus. I pray that, that would be true of us. I pray that would be true of my life as well. I thank you for your word. I thank you for your uh, amazing love for us. You eagerly desired it with the disciples, and you can't wait to share a meal with even us as we get uh, to eternity as well. I thank you for your love and your care for us, and uh, just praise you this morning for it. In the name I pray. Amen.